Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 8. In Ezra chapter 7, we had the narrative of Ezra's commissioning and the extraordinary favor extended to him by King Artaxerxes, favor that Ezra credited to the providence and ordination of the Lord. Here in chapter 8, we have the story of Ezra's actual return. Now, you'll notice that most of this chapter is written in the first person. So in verse 1, for example, it says, These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia. This first-person narrative style continues all the way through to verse 35. In verses 35 and 36, the story is told in the third person. So you get phrases like, at that time, those who had come from captivity, and they also delivered the king's commissions. Now, as I mentioned in a previous episode, scholars generally assume that the primary sources for these books, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, were the original first-hand memoirs written by Ezra and Nehemiah themselves. Both men were highly educated, highly capable government officials. They would have, of course, kept meticulous notes. And based on what we can observe in these texts, it appears very much as if they created diaries of their experiences and records of their decisions and interactions while on these various assignments. And then it appears that at some point shortly thereafter, Someone took those records and memoirs and added just a little bit of literary stitching to create these finished works. Now, that someone is often referred to as the chronicler. Perhaps he was one of the Levites associated with this particular return. Uh, Maybe he was Ezra's assistant. Some say he was Ezra himself, that in his retirement, he took his own memoirs and those of his colleague Nehemiah and put them together in the form that we have before us today. Now, unfortunately, we can't say for sure, but it is interesting to note these sources, and we are obviously meant to notice these sources. Absolutely no effort is made to cover them up. And of course, there's nothing sinful or suspect about using sources. The Gospel of Luke opens with a statement about sources and and Luke's process. So I think it's absolutely wonderful Uh, that we have these sources, and there's no reason not to take note of them when we encounter them and when we see these stitches and transitions in the books. The first 34 verses of this chapter clearly come directly from the memoirs of Ezra, and they tell us about all the careful preparations and deliberations involved in this second wave of return. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush. Now we'll just pause here to notice something. Uh, First of all, notice that he has begun by listing the heads of priestly families. Two families are noted, the family of Phinehas and the family of Ithamar. Gershom is the head of the first branch and Daniel the head of the second. He then goes on to mention the royal house of David and its current head, Hattush. 
Hattush, according to 1 Chronicles 3, verse 22, is the great-great-grandson of Zerubbabel, which is kind of interesting. It makes us wonder whether Zerubbabel retired back in Babylon or whether perhaps maybe some of his sons went back to Babylon. Regardless, this man, Hattush, obviously grew up in Babylon and is now joining other members of his family remaining in Judea. And that is a fairly common theme in this list. Almost all of the families mentioned here are related to families who took part in the first wave. And that suggests that families were divided as to whether this resettlement program was a good idea. It would seem like two brothers might have gone and two brothers might have stayed. We know that there was a sizable number of Jews remaining in Babylon after the first return. The story of Esther takes place between the first and second return. So obviously the majority of Jews remained voluntarily in exile. We know from history that they were doing very well actually in this period in the Persian Empire. However, we also know that they were subject to periodic harassment. The story of Haman in the book of Esther reminds us of that. And maybe that incident convinced a lot of people to give this whole resettlement program a second look. Because it does seem that people who had relatives living in the land are now more likely to join up as part of this second wave. So if you're a very careful reader and you don't mind flipping back and forth in your Bible, you will notice that just about every family mentioned here has branches and members associated with the first return. Notice also here that Ezra does not mention the total number of individuals from these families, the priestly and the royal families, just their family head. Perhaps Ezra had a separate list of every individual, or perhaps it was the responsibility of each family head to keep such a list themselves. Regardless, the main thing for us to notice here is that in the case of the priestly and royal families, only the family heads are mentioned. In verses 3 and following, we get the body of the list, and from this point on, the head of the family is mentioned, as well as all the adult men who were part of that family. Starting in verse 3, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Eliahonai, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshaiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him two hundred and eighteen men. Of the sons of Bani, Shalomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him one hundred and sixty men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Babai, and with him twenty-eight men. Of the sons of Azgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, the majority of the families listed here were related to folks who had been part of the first wave of returnees under Zerubbabel and Jeshua. In fact, only one of the families mentioned here has no apparent connection to a first wave family, the family of Joab mentioned in verse 9. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary remarks upon this oddity, saying, The interest of this forbidding list of names and numbers lies in the fact that in every case but one, these groups are joining at long last the descendants of the pioneers from their own family stock who had been in the first party to return from Babylon 80 years before. It underlines the fact that the original challenge to return in the days of Cyrus had had a very mixed response dividing individual clans down the middle. There is nothing to indicate that even now these families were complete, leaving none of their members behind. Close quote. It's easy to forget how many Jews there were living in the Persian Empire. Some historians estimate that the Jews made up as much as 20% of the Persian population in the 5th century BC. That would suggest that there were close to 10 million Jews scattered throughout the Persian Empire, with the highest concentration being in the province of Babylon. And yet, these returns represent only a tiny fraction of that population. This second return is generally estimated at consisting of approximately 5,000 people. So clearly, not everyone was on board with the urgency and importance of this project. Many people, obviously most people, had decided that it was better to be rich and safe in Babylon than to be poor and overworked and constantly harassed in the Jewish homeland. It was a contentious issue, and clearly families were divided over it. And I suppose we would say, understandably so. This would be a hazardous undertaking. There would be dangers, dangers on the road, dangers in the land, if they got to the land, and difficulties beyond imagining. The land would have to be recleared. Rubble would have to be removed. Supply chains, no doubt, would be unreliable. Labor would be constantly in short supply. Everything would be in short supply. It would be almost impossible to pull off. So why bother? I mean, the Jews were doing really well in Persia. After the episode with Haman, they'd gone from the bottom of the pile to the top of the pile. So why change things now? And yet, there was something undeniably attractive about the prospect of having your own country. There was a security in that and an opportunity in that. And besides, hadn't the Lord promised that to his covenant people long ago? And so people of courage, people who remembered, and people who were willing to risk it all in pursuit of an ancient promise, stepped out in faith, and they volunteered to be a part of this second return. But as we've already mentioned, their company was small and it was not evenly or proportionately constituted. We hear about that in the next part of the story, beginning at verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. 
All right, let's pause here for a moment just to clarify a few things from these verses. So Ezra and the group started out on the first of the month. We remember that from chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Took them a few days to get to the river that runs to Ahava. Now, we're not entirely sure where that was, but obviously it served as some sort of last stop or point of no return in terms of gathering supplies and people. If you're familiar at all with some of the pioneer stories from the history of the American West, then this is like when the pioneers stopped in St. Louis before crossing the Mississippi so as to access the Oregon Trail. St. Louis was the last chance to buy supplies. After that, once you cross the river, you're in the wilderness and you are on your own. And so it is here. The caravan comes to a halt and Ezra reviews the people. And he discovers that they're critically short of Levites. They had a couple of priestly families, but no Levites. So he sends out a delegation to Edo, the leading man at a place called Casaphia. Now, we aren't entirely sure what that means either. Again, this exodus took place roughly 2,500 years ago. So some of these places and people have been lost to the sands of history. We assume that it refers to a place with a very large concentration of Jews. We think that Edo ran a large and influential synagogue, almost like a seminary and that it must have had a large number of Levitical families participating in it. The delegation went there because they expected to find trained Levites there. So that seems to be a fairly reasonable inference. Wherever they went, and whatever it was, they came back with what they were hoping to find. We read about that in verse 18. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshaiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides, 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So that's a pretty good haul. <laughs> and the fact that they were able to raise this group on such short notice suggests that this second wave of return had been a topic of conversation throughout the region. Maybe these families had already been praying about whether they should participate. Maybe, maybe they'd been talking about it and even maybe arguing about it over the supper table for months. We don't know. We just know that when this delegation came calling, a surprisingly large number of people stepped forward and volunteered. 38 Levites and 220 temple servants left their homes, their businesses, their communities, and joined this little caravan. That's amazing. And Ezra attributes this to nothing other than the providential favor of the Lord. And thus, the company was now complete. But before crossing the river and heading out into the wild, Ezra calls for a time of fasting and prayer. We read about that now in verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, if you're a frequent Bible reader, you might recall that this provides something of a contrast with the later approach of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had no problem asking for and receiving a military escort. 
We hear about that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. So why did Ezra not feel comfortable asking for that here in the second wave of return? The answer likely has to do with the explicitly religious nature of this particular wave. Nehemiah was a government official. He was being sent as the governor, and as such, it was appropriate for him to have a full military escort. As the king's representative, any injury or insult suffered by him would be as if it had been received by the king himself. So, obviously, the dignity of his venture had to be protected. But Ezra's undertaking was explicitly religious, and Ezra must have been concerned that to request a military escort in this instance would have muddied the waters and called into question the favor of the Lord upon the enterprise. And so we're reminded here of the need for wisdom in every circumstance. Sometimes the situation is going to dictate a slightly different approach. Let everyone be convinced in their own mind. Regardless, Ezra calls for a time of prayer and fasting. He is seeking favor from God for a safe journey, particularly given the nature of the party, consisting as it does of weaker and more vulnerable members. He says in verse 21 that he is praying for ourselves and for our children. The Hebrew word there literally means the weak. Fensham writes that it refers here to all the weak returnees, like women, children, and the aged, close quote. So unlike the first wave of return, which appears to have been made up mostly of younger unmarried men, this is a family return. We have women and children, maybe even some grandmas and grandpas. So obviously Ezra is concerned about safety on the roads. And so he calls for an extended time of prayer and fasting. We pick up the story in verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 100 darks and two vessels of fine, bright bronze, as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them, and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Now, scholars disagree here as to whether we are to understand that there were 12 priests consisting of Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen, or whether we are to understand that there were 12 priests overseeing Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen, all of whom were Levites, making for an oversight committee of 24 people, 12 priests and 12 Levites in total. On balance, the latter option seems preferable. Verses 18 to 19 of this chapter seem to indicate that Sherebiah and Hashabiah were Levites. So they shouldn't be thought of as priests, as the ESV layout of verse 24 seems to suggest. I think the CSB actually has the clearer rendering here. It says, 
I selected 12 of the leading priests along with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. So 12 priests and 12 Levites seems to be the better way to understand that. Regardless, the point here is that considerable care was taken to ensure that these gifts and offerings were properly secured and accounted for. The king of Persia, the various nobles, and many wealthy Jewish individuals had given very generously. I mean, the sums here are absolutely incredible. The New International Commentary records the following estimate by Jacob Myers. 24 and a half tons of silver and three and three quarter tons of gold. In today's prices, that would equal 16 billion U.S. dollars for the silver alone, not even counting the gold. So this is a fantastic level of investment, and obviously the need for diligent stewardship here would be paramount. And that explains why at the end of the journey, a precise accounting was undertaken so as to demonstrate that the entire deposit was faithfully accounted for in Jerusalem. Ezra the scribe and Ezra the Persian official would be very concerned to enter that into the historical record. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We pick up the story again at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with him were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Now, nothing is said about the journey itself which would have covered about 900 miles. Ezra simply says that they arrived safely in Jerusalem and enjoyed three days of rest. On the fourth day, as their first order of business, they conducted a thorough accounting and were pleased to be able to verify the safe transport of the entire sum of money that had been donated by the various parties back in Persia. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. And so, most appropriately, there was a worship service to give thanks to God for his mercy, oversight, and provision. We read about that now in verse 35 and following. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, in these closing verses, there's a switch to third-person narrative. The author speaks about those who had come from captivity, and he says they delivered the king's commission to the local authorities, and they aided the people and the house of God. So obviously someone has taken Ezra's first-hand memoirs and is providing here a little bit of a narrative stitch to bring the story to a close and to provide a transition into the next part of the story. Whether that was Ezra himself later in his retirement or one of his scribal assistants, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. 
our interest in noting that is simply to draw out the fact that first-hand narratives make up a substantial portion of the story. In this book, we have access to the recollections of those who were immediately involved in these undertakings. That's a tremendous privilege. We're being told here that this second wave caravan arrived safely in Jerusalem under the full authority of the Persian king with tremendous resources for investment in the temple and the entire community project. It was a great day. Families were reunited after 80 years of separation. The budget was reinvigorated for the entire community. The entire political situation had changed in their favor. This felt like a turning point. This felt like a new lease on life. This felt like a new exodus, like a new Noah's Ark. There were priests, Levites, members of the house of David, and 12 courageous Jewish families. That sounds like everything you need to reboot the entire covenant project. And that's what this was. It was a new day, a new start, and a new creation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 